If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the fourth chapter of Daniel, we'll be starting at verse 28. We've been working our way through the book of Daniel in the last several weeks through this fourth chapter, and today we'll be looking at Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and also his restoration. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 28, and let us stand as we honor God's word. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God will bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we reflect upon these your words, we ask you to teach us about your work of humbling to bring to repentance and your work of raising up to rejoice in who you are and in your saving benefits and even to praise your most glorious name. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I remember when I was a boy that I joined forces with several other young men, and we had a patch of woods near our house, and we proceeded to build a treehouse. And the treehouse was a respectable distance off the ground, and we wanted to, we actually put a roof on our treehouse, and we wanted to be able to get on top of our roof and safely play around up there. And so we took two-by-fours and nailed them between the three trees that that were the structure, the support for our treehouse. And so we had a treehouse, we had a roof on which to play, 
and we had railing for safety. However, not so safe because one of the little games that we played is that we would walk on the, the two-by-fours, uh, you know, again, a respectable distance up in the air, uh, like, like a balance beam, just to see how many times uh, we could do it. And, and so one Saturday morning, I told my mom that I was heading down uh, to the woods to play with my friends in our newly constructed treehouse, and somehow she found out that we were walking on the two-by-fours uh, like a balance beam, and she said, as any respectable mother would say, Tim, don't do that. You're going to fall. Now, what do you think was my response? Did someone say, I will never fall? Yes. Well, that was my response. I will never fall. So I went down to the treehouse, and I suspect it was within 30 minutes I had fallen from the balance beam, and I remember hitting the ground so hard. So if you're wondering why I am the way I am today, this may be why. I hit the ground so hard that my nose began to bleed, and so I made my way home uh, humiliated and I do not know if my mother called our preacher, but I recovered just fine on Saturday, and the sermon topic the next day was, Pride Comes Before the Fall. Now, you may think that I am joking about that, but I am not. I was stunned. And so... For most of my life, I've been able to identify with Nebuchadnezzar in a very real sense. Pride, God bringing about humility, a fall. But what I want us to think about today is that God doesn't humble us to get even. He doesn't humble us as a stern taskmaster to punish us for being bad little boys and girls. God humbles his people in order to exalt them, to restore them to greater ministry. And so our, our time today is going to be working through this passage, and I only have two points today. Can you believe it? A two-point Presbyterian sermon. What's the world coming to? It's simply this... <laughs> God is patient, God's patience, and Nebuchadnezzar's humility, or humbling, that's point one, and then Nebuchadnezzar's restoration and God's praise. And so that, that's our two-point sermon. And so we want to begin by God's patience and Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. And, and as we, we begin this, I, I want us to reflect on several principles that we find in Scripture. And here's the first principle, that God, out of His kindness, is patient to sinners to give them an opportunity to give them time to repent. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And then from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so when we, when we think about God's kindness towards Nebuchadnezzar, we see that in verse 27 of chapter 4, that God called Nebuchadnezzar to repentance through Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And we also find in verse 29 that 12 months, one year, had been appointed by God to allow Nebuchadnezzar time to repent an entire year. He was called to back off from his sin, to turn and have faith in God. And God said, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm kind and patient. I'm long-suffering. And here are these 12 months. Well, you have a second principle. And here it is. God relents if sinners repent. Joel chapter 2 and verses 12 through 13 state this, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And so, at any point during that 12-month period, that full year that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, if he repented, God would be true to his word and would remove Nebuchadnezzar from, out from under this sentence that had been part of the dream that we've already studied in the previous message. And so the summary thus far is that God in kindness is patient with sinners to allow time for them to repent. And if a sinner repents, God will relent of dispensing his wrath upon them. Now, I want to simply make a clarification here about the passage in in Joel. When Joel says that God relents in sending calamity, he is not saying that God changes his mind. He is saying that God simply does what God says he will do. So let's go to the book of Jonah. I know there's one Sunday school class studying Jonah now, so I'll give you a little preview. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh and preach repentance, and Jonah said no, so he goes to Tarsus, but yet you know the story. He eventually wound up in Nineveh by way of a well, and he reluctantly preached repentance to the Ninevites. He really did not want them to repent. He wanted them to suffer God's wrath. But God said, if the Ninevites repent, I will not pour out my wrath upon them. And so what did the Ninevites do? They repented, and God remained true to his word and did not pour out his wrath upon them. And so that's the good news for us, that it is not that God changes his mind. God just simply does what God says he will do. And he says that if you repent, I will not bring about judgment upon you. In fact, I will forgive you and I will restore you. And that is true for those that are yet outside the kingdom of God. 
that are still in rebellion against him, but they come to their senses and they repent and they turn to Jesus in saving faith and God forgives them. And they're no longer under that judgment. And it's true of you and me who are in the kingdom of God as we continue to struggle with sin and we daily need to go to the Lord to, to repent and we repent, he forgives us and he restores us and he does not hold the sin against us. So here's the principle. God does what he says he will do and if we repent, he relents. But there's a third principle and here it is. God's patience with sinners has limits, and he will be true to his word. For those sinners who presume upon God's kindness and stubbornly disobey and remain unrepentant, God will execute his wrath upon them temporally and ultimately in a final sense in the consummation. I have a couple of scriptures that tell us this. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will, there will be wrath and fury. And then in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 through 32, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declaring the Lord, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart, and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has yet to turn and has yet to experience life. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar presumed upon God's kindness and patience. He remained prideful and stubborn, and God did what God said he would do. He poured out his wrath as we learned the specifics of that for Nebuchadnezzar in the dream that we talked about last week. Now, as we look at verses 29 and 30 of Daniel 4, we, we find that, that at the end of the year, so it had been a whole year since this dream and Daniel calling Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. And so Nebuchadnezzar is up on his rooftop of his palace. And I can just, just imagine this. He could very well be by himself. And you know how it goes when you're really proud of yourself, and you say, oh, man, aren't I great. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar up, up on his rooftop, and he's looking out over Babylon, and what might he see? Well, I'll tell, tell you what he saw. He saw a fantastic city, a city that you and I would probably really enjoy visiting, a city with fantastic buildings, with temples, a city with gardens. In fact, the garden in Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built and dedicated to his wife is considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was looking out and saying, oh man, look, look at what I have made. Look at how glorious I am because of how glorious all that I have made is. I have built all this, he says, by my mighty power as a royal resonance and for the glory of my majesty. 
and all that he made and all that, that he was seeing on that day on that roof, it was all about Nebuchadnezzar. It was for his glory. And he refused to be humble and humbled. And he refused to acknowledge the Most High God. And so in verse 31, God remained true to his word. And all the, there's this voice that comes down from heaven as Nebuchadnezzar is there going, Oh man, he's, he's boasting to himself about, about how great he is and how great his city is. And then there's this voice from heaven that comes down that brings a sentence of judgment and it is pronounced upon Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 32, the, the, the sentence was exactly what was threatened in that dream that we've already studied in the previous verses. And that would happen to Nebuchadnezzar if he refused to repent. And so here we see that Nebuchadnezzar being stubborn, lost it all. And in fact, in verse 32, the text says, the kingdom you built by your might and for your glory has departed from you. I mean, notice the has departed. It's already taken away. It was an immediate thing. And we see this in verse 33, that immediately Nebuchadnezzar was driven out from among men. He became, as we talked about last week, a wild animal. And it's also described in verses 33 as well. So here's the summary of this. God is patient. He grants time for sinners to repent. And if they repent, he will relent of bringing judgment and his wrath upon them. But if they refuse to repent, if they are stubborn in their pride, if they presume upon God's kindness, he will bring his wrath upon them in punishment. And as we read in Ezekiel 18... Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. And here we see that Nebuchadnezzar's iniquity was his ruin, and God was utterly faithful to do what he said he will do. And so I say to you, and I say to myself today, God will be faithful to relent if you repent, and he will be faithful to bring his wrath to bear upon you and upon me if we remain unrepentant and stubborn in our pride. Are we presuming upon the Lord's kindness? Today is the day to humble. I know there may be some here today, maybe even some young people here today that think, oh, I've got my whole life ahead of me. I don't need to really get serious about all this humbling before the Lord and repentance. I can kind of enjoy things now, and then there'll be time later for that. No. There is an urgency to seeking the Lord, being humbled, and out of that repenting because God is faithful you can count on him to forgive you if you repent. You can count on him at some point, in some way, at some time to bring temporal judgment to bear upon you if you remain unrepentant. And this is the lesson that we find here in Nebuchadnezzar. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity 
be your downfall. But now we want to look at the second point of your sermon outline. God was patient, and Nebuchadnezzar was humbled because he was unwilling to repent. But now we want to look at Nebuchadnezzar's restoration and God's praise. And there's a fourth principle that I would like to share with you today. And here it is. The way up is the way down. James 4, 6 through 10. But he gives more grace, therefore, it says. God opposes the proud, and get, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then we read in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see, the way up is the way down. Humility, and out of that, God exalting. And Nebuchadnezzar fleshes out this principle in verse 34. After the full period of God's judgment had been upon him, which we've talked about in the previous message, but also it's detailed here once again in verse 32, that there's this period of seven times, meaning it was a full period of Nebuchadnezzar experiencing the wrath of God. We want to say that this was an appointed period of time from the beginning to the end. It was all under God's sovereignty. It was all uh, based upon his, his calendar. And so this full period of wrath had come to an end in verse 34. And Nebuchadnezzar says, as he does in verses 4 and verses 18, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I attest to this, that at one point all my eyes could, listen to this, at one point all my eyes could do is to look out at what I had made and see just how great I am and how glorious I am, says Nebuchadnezzar. And, the, and God's heavy hand of, of judgment came upon him and took it all away. And now we find in verse 34 that all Nebuchadnezzar could do, the man who looked at what he had made, there was no, nothing there. He had been so humbled and devastated that the only thing he could do, the only source of help that he had, was to lift his eyes to heaven. Can you believe it? It's right here in verse 34. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I attest that it's true. I was such a fool. I was so stubborn. And God took it all away. And the only thing I have, the only help I have, is the God who is in heaven. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. This is our call to worship. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And Psalm 121 likely is a psalm of ascent that was, that was given to assure the people of God's, God's care and God's provision as they, they came to worship. But it's a beautiful psalm to remind us that 
our help is in heaven. I mean, most people, and we struggle with this as, as those who are in the kingdom of God, don't we? That we look to other things for help. We look to money. We look to position. We look to other people. We look to institutions. We look to this. We look to that. We think that these things, and these things are our first line of help. And what we find is when we seek those things, we find those things to be flawed and indeed helpless. And what's amazing to me, and I attest to this, I, Tim Reed, attest to this, that, that time and time again, I look for help in these things, and they prove to be helpless. And I believe it's by the sovereign hand of God that once again he's going to show Tim Reed that the only help is the source when you lift your eyes to heaven. It is the God in heaven who is our help, not these things that are part of this world, even though they may be good things. And Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven, and he came to see that my help comes from the Lord. On a theological note, let me just say this, that sinful man cannot in any shape, fashion, or form genuinely look, lift his eyes to heaven in and of himself. And Nebuchadnezzar proves this. He was a natural man for lo these many verses, lo these many chapters, and he did not lift his eyes to heaven. He was so proud of himself, and that's the way natural man is. He will not look to God. He can only look to the things on the horizontal plane, the things that we have already said at the end will be flawless and, and helpless. And so why did Nebuchadnezzar come to the place of lifting his eyes to heaven? I'll tell you why. Because God worked to humble him. And God gave him what he needed to take his eyes off of what he had done and to gaze upon who God is in heaven. And I want us to think about this in terms of the doctrine of regeneration. That in order for a sinner to look to heaven... For true help, God has to work and change that person's nature. Now, there's disagreement amongst commentators. Was Nebuchadnezzar genuinely converted? And I hate to say this, but our theological forefather, John Calvin, doubted it. However, E.J. Young, one of my favorite Reformed theologians and and Dr. Ferguson believed that he was genuinely converted. I mean, how do you measure these great minds? And they disagree a bit. And so I'm going to throw my lot in that Nebuchadnezzar genuinely had a spiritual experience here. Because the, the way the Scripture describes what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, I can't explain it any other way. Therefore, a hardened, stubborn, prideful tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar to make the profession of faith that he makes in these verses leads me to only one place, that God had worked and changed his heart. And it's because of that Nebuchadnezzar was able to lift his eyes to heaven from whence his help came. And boy, did his help come. So regardless, we see here a beautiful picture of God working. And so in verse 34, out of the depths of despair and, and all the humiliation, the text tells us that he looks up to heaven. The reason is, is restored. The one who had been so resistant now is irresistibly drawn to God. 
He becomes submissive. Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses. And I want to pause here for a pastoral note. Gave you a theological note, now I want to give you a pastoral note. I think there are many people walking around today that when they look at their life, they say, Oh my, I am such a filthy sinner. There is no way God would have anything to do with me. There's no way in the world I can ask Him for anything because I'm so bad, I'm so sinful, I'm so filthy. And so I'm going to have to clean myself up before I ask God for anything. I'm going to have to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. Have you ever met anybody like that? I have. Now, I think they use that as an excuse, perhaps, but I think there are probably people out there that think they really are too bad to come to Jesus. That is unbiblical thinking. (laughs) And we could call it that. That is wrong-headed thinking. Listen, in John chapter 4, when the woman at the well came to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, hey, whoa, woman, clean yourself up. You, you're really sinful. Go take a, do, do something, but get presentable before you come to me. No. Jesus engaged this woman that is the epitome of sin in that day. And he engaged her, never condemned her, engaged her, and what did he do? He offered her life. She didn't have to clean herself up to come to Jesus. And then we think of the leper in Matthew chapter 8. Leprosy, such a, a, it just, it's just hard for me to think of what leprosy in the first century was, but I know it was terrible. And Jesus didn't say, hey, hey, listen, leper, before you, first of all, stay at a distance. And secondly, I want you to put some clean clothes on. I want you to cover up all that decay in your flesh. No! Jesus received that leper. Listen, if you're here today and, and, and you've never really trusted in Jesus because you think you're too bad, because you think you're too sinful, because you think you've got to clean up first, stop thinking. Jesus came to deal with sin. He came to engage sinful people. There is no sin, there's no sinner that's a barrier to Jesus to offer you life and to actually grant you life through repentance and faith. You come to Jesus just as filthy as you are. And I want to speak to those of us who are already in the kingdom of God, who are believers, that sometimes we're ashamed of our sin. Now, yeah, okay, we should be ashamed of our sin. But we're so ashamed of our sin that we're fearful to take it to Jesus. That's unbiblical thinking. That's wrong-headed thinking. Don't hide your sin. Don't fear taking your sin to Jesus. He already knows it anyway, by the way. But take it to Him in, in, in confession. He came to deal with all of our mess. And the Scriptures tell us that Jesus has the mercy that we need. He is the first one we go to when we come to see our sin. If we come to see our sin as an unsaved person, Jesus is the first person you go to with your sin. If we come to see our sin as we do probably on a daily basis as a redeemed person, Jesus is the first person we go to with our sin. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was the epitome of a filthy, insane, animal-like, natural man. But I tell you what, there, there are, a whole stable of horses could not keep him from lifting his eyes to God. So I want to encourage us today that in the midst of our sin, whatever the context might be, Jesus is the one that we need to lift our eyes in, in repentance and confession. Nebuchadnezzar's change is reflected in, in verse 34 in this statement. This is, just, this is one of, there are many amazing statements in Scripture. I think this, this ranks among them. This is Nebuchadnezzar. I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. That's in verse 34. No longer was Nebuchadnezzar about praising himself. He was about praising God. In fact, in verses 34 through 35, he confesses God's sovereignty, that it's God's dominion and kingdom are everlasting, not his or any other man's. He confesses that man is a creature and that God is the creator and that God is supreme, not man. Man is responsible to God, not vice versa. He confesses that God's ways and will are true and right. He confesses that God is in total control and brings about his purposes, and no man can challenge God's purposes. In verse 36, Nebuchadnezzar was completely restored. And listen to what the text says. More greatness was given to him. Not just what he had before, but more. And then in verse 37, the chapter ends with a solemn pledge. I, Nebuchadnezzar, once again attests to the fact that now he praises and extols and honors the King of Heaven. And he accepts that all his works and his ways are just. I mean, what a confession Nebuchadnezzar gives here. What a change that has taken place. And then in verse 37, simple statement, but I think is the key statement of the whole chapter. Verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says this, those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. God is able to humble me. If God can humble Nebuchadnezzar, and if God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, he definitely has and can humble me, and he has and can humble you. He he humbled me to draw me into his kingdom, and he's in the business of humbling me as I live in his kingdom, not to punish me, not to thumb his nose in me, not to make my life miserable, but he humbles me to draw me into closer fellowship with himself. And that's a good thing. And God is in the business of doing that in your life as well. God humbles us and He breaks our pride. He, he breaks our self-sufficiency so that we come like Nebuchadnezzar to the place of saying that really all we have is God. All of these other things that I have done, all of these other people that I have trusted in are not helpful in the end. Only God. And God brings us low. He humbles us. As James says, humble yourself and he will exalt you. And I just simply want us to pause and think about God humbling us 
to deal with our pride, to deal with our self-sufficiency, to show us how we're not seeking Him but seeking self like Nebuchadnezzar, and to bring us to a place of being so humbled that we lift our eyes to Him as our only help, the help. John Newton, many of you know John Newton's good friend, William Cooper, both excellent hymn writers, and Cooper certainly in his own right a hymn writer, were colleagues. Also, Cooper was part of uh, Newton's church. Newton was his pastor. And during one of the darkest periods of John Newton's life, his, his good friend and his colleague in the development of the Olney Hymnal, which we find many beautiful hymns, both from Newton and Cooper, during one of the darkest hours, William Cooper went insane. And John Newton was struggling with how, and in fact, I think William Cooper probably has written some of the greatest, at least uh, one, one hymn in our hymnal is probably one of the greatest hymns ever written. written. And this guy went insane. <laughs> and it was such a dark time that Newton was struggling with, you know, Lord, we pray that, that we want to grow spiritually. Do you pray that? I do. And then we find that we're just terribly humbled because of our sin. That we keep struggling with this sin or, 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 or that sin. And Newton was just struggling with it. Here's his friend, this great hymn writer that's going insane. Why? And it's interesting that out of that that struggle of Newton trying to figure out, we pray for spiritual growth, but it seems like we struggle with sin, that he wrote the hymn that's printed in your bulletin, I Ask the Lord. I am very thankful to Indelible Grace Music because this hymn is not in the Trinity hymnal or any other hymnal that I have seen. It was a hymn that was basically lost and they found it as in the Olney hymnal. And they put it to new music so God's people could sing it today. In my opinion, this ranks among the best hymns ever written. And for years it's been lost to God's people. And now we're able to sing it. And it, it, it tells a story. But at the very end of it, Newton comes to this. God's saying, you know what, John? I sovereignly use sin in your life to humble you so, that you so that you know that I am your all in all. I want you to remain seated. And as an immediate application of what we've been talking about in the sermon, I want us to use this hymn as a preparation for confession. I ask the Lord that I might grow.